Welcome to Viva La Volva, the podcast that explores and teaches about the goodness of the vulva. Here is your host, Dr. Kara Quant, an internal medicine doctor and advocate for female sexual health. Hello and welcome to the Viva La Volva podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara Quant. And I have a special guest on the podcast today. Her name is Dr. Cindy Duke. And we are talking all about female infertility and egg freezing. And I know it is a a sensitive topic for many women out there, but it's an important topic. And I've been uh, asked many questions about it. I've asked, or women have come up to me and, you know, asked for an infertility specialist to be on the podcast because they've wanted to hear this information. (laughs) But there's a lot of women that are curious about it and there's a lot of information online, but they want more, you know, like information that they can hold on to and digest if they need to, to use it in the future or now. So Dr. Cindy Duke has been willing to come onto the podcast. So I am so grateful for you to be on. Thanks for having me, Dr. Quant, and hello, everyone listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yes. So I wanted to uh, do a little introduction. So she is a MD, PhD trained physician scientist who is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and fellowship trained in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, which is also considered REI. She went to medical school and uh, received her PhD at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. She received her PhD in microbiology and immunology. Wow. She did her residency at Johns Hopkins in OBGYN, and then she did her fellowship at Yale uh, New Haven Hospital uh, for reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She was born in Trinidad and Tobago and completed her primary and secondary education in her home island of Tobago. So again, thank you, Dr. Duke, for coming on and giving us this information around infertility and egg freezing, which again, is not the easiest topic to talk about, but definitely practical. I agree. Thank you again for having me. And I'm really eager to shed some light on the topic and to answer any questions. Nothing's off limits. Yes. Okay. I wanted to start out by just asking, like, what is infertility? Like, what is the, you know, I'm sure there's like a definition out there of what infertility means. Mm -hmm. So when we define infertility, we actually define it based on the female partner in a couple And the definition, the classic definition is based on heterosexual couples. So a definition of infertility is split between people who are age 35 and younger or those who are older than 35. And so for a female who's under 35, we define infertility as failure to achieve pregnancy despite having regular unprotected intercourse for 12 months, one year. Mm. And so it has to be regular, meaning every two to three days in a course over the course of a year. And if she has not conceived despite one year of regular unprotected intercourse, then that's defined as infertility. In a woman who's 35 and older, we shorten the time frame to six months. So six months 
of regular unprotected intercourse. If that woman has not conceived after six months, then that is considered infertility in a 35-year-old woman or older. So those are the classic definitions. Mm -hmm. Now, we've actually modified it a little bit for women 40 and older in suggesting that if she's tried for three months unprotected intercourse and still hasn't gotten pregnant at 40 years or older, because we're working with so few eggs at that age, we recommend going in to see a fertility specialist at three months, although the textbooks will say six months. Because 35 and older textbook definition is six months of unprotected intercourse, regular intercourse. Okay. So for the women out there that have been having unprotected sex with their partners on a regular basis for if they're under 35 for a year, if they're over 35 for six months, or if they're over 40 for three months, then you suggest going to an infertility specialist. Yes. Now, some people may not have access to an infertility specialist. And so it's certainly okay to go talk to your OBGYN and to say, you know what, we've been trying and we haven't had much luck and keeping in mind those timeframes, because certainly someone under 35 may have a little bit more leeway in terms of waiting to check on their fertility parameters, but 35 and older, you really need to get moving if it's not working. Mm, Okay. And for those women, because I know there's a lot of women that are out there that are like, you know, my career is moving (laughs) along and a lot of women have delayed pregnancy for those later years, including myself, who is 35 years (laughs) old. So (laughs) So I am in that box. You know, I know that I'm not alone and I know there's other women that I'm speaking to. But for those women that are, you know, they want to have children later, but they want to have their career or these other things that are moving along come first, what do you recommend for those women? We recommend for anyone 30 and older, definitely if you're approaching 35, that they consider egg freezing. Now, the reason why we recommend egg freezing is all based on the biology of the human body and the ovaries. And so what we know is that as women, we're born with all of the eggs we are going to have. We do not make new eggs. And I think that's really important to explain and emphasize because the majority of us do not realize that. And we assume that because we're still having periods, we're making eggs. But the truth is, no matter what your age is, the eggs that you're using right now were already formed about four months before you were born, wow. right? So technically, your eggs are about four months older than you are. So whatever age you are, add about four months to that, that's how old your eggs are. And so as we age, our egg numbers decline. When we're born, we're probably born with somewhere between one to two million eggs. But by the time we're 30 years old, of the eggs we were born with are gone. And by the time we're 40, only 3% are left, meaning Mm. 97% are gone. And so that 30 to 40 year window is really important. If you haven't had children yet, or if you would like to continue growing your family, but you know, you're taking some time to focus on your career or maybe find the right relationship, find the right social situation. Mm -hmm. We recommend considering egg freezing. Now, I should be clear in saying that egg freezing is not a guarantee that you'd be able to have a child in the future, 
but it certainly increases your chances significantly compared to just waiting it out and hoping <laughs> that it goes mm. well. Mm, okay. So you were saying between 30 and 40, 40. is the age mm-hmm. that you should consider doing egg freezing if you're considering that route? Yes. Now, if you look at the actual research data and the studies, they looked at women 25 years old because we believe that's when your eggs are at their peak. But what we also know is the average 25-year-old just has so much else going on that egg <laughs> yeah. freezing is the last thing on her mind. You know, Yeah, I know it's the last thing on my mind. Insurance, <laughs> yeah. And unless you have health insurance covering it, it also is probably not a cost that most 25-year-olds are prepared to take on. And so that's why we've raised it up. If you were to ask me, um, what's the average age of people showing up to do egg freezing? Right now, in the past five years, since egg freezing has become what we call standard of care, most women presenting are somewhere between age 35 and 40. Some are even over 40. We've spent a lot of time and a lot of public health advocacy encouraging women to know about their biology of the ovaries. You know, we've done such a good job with our feminist culture. And I say this as a feminist by telling everyone, you know, the clock doesn't matter, but there's still one clock that keeps ticking and that's the ovary. And so now we're really trying to encourage people to freeze eggs. So right now the average age we're seeing is probably between 35 to 38 is when people are showing up. But it really would be good if we can get more people showing up between 30 and 35. Mm, Okay. Because their egg quality is a little bit better during the 30 to 35 age than the 35 to 38. Absolutely. Egg Mm -hmm. quality is significantly better. Mm. Egg quantity is also better because you have more eggs at that point compared to five plus years later. But it's really the quality, yes, because the quality is what drives the ability to form a baby. It's what drives the process that can lead to chromosomal differences like, you know, Down syndrome and other chromosomal issues and differences that can occur. And so we do recognize that most people, you're still thinking you've got a lot of time on your hands when you're 32, 33, (laughs) 34. Yeah especially if you're building a career for us as doctors, most of us are just finishing medical school and maybe finishing up residency or just about starting our lives as attendings. And we've got tremendous student loan debt. So the last thing we're thinking of is, yes, I definitely do. It's an expense. I agree. But the truth is if you consider the cost of egg freezing, and you compare that to the cost of IVF at 43, 44, 45, coupled with the diminishing yields and returns, it is actually more cost effective to freeze your eggs between 34 to 37. Okay. So let's get into the cost because I've heard that it is quite expensive to <laughs> do the whole process, including freezing your eggs. So if we can get into the cost of like, what is the average cost of egg freezing and the process before it? Yeah. So let's see. I'll start with the process because I think cost, some people may just stop listening. So I'll start with the process. Okay. <laughs> I'm teasing. I like but that. The process for egg freezing is actually fairly straightforward. 
So if you're someone considering getting your eggs frozen, the first step would be to contact a fertility clinic. There's certainly now what we call direct-to-consumer programs, even through Amazon, where you can go get an what we call ovarian reserve test done. And so you're Amazon. Yeah, there's wow. it's now what we call DTC, direct to consumer. <laughs> there are also some physicians who have programs like Dr. Amy Ezevede out of San Francisco. She has my tushy program, which simply means you go in, you get a transvaginal ultrasound, mm-hmm. you get a blood test to look at a hormonal test that is a measure of your egg reserve or how many eggs you have remaining in your ovary. And you also will get a quick visit with her. And so that's what we recommend. And so for some women, your OBGYNs can do it, but many OBGYNs don't necessarily feel comfortable doing that test. And so we would recommend going to see a fertility specialist like myself. And so typically that first appointment with me, it lasts somewhere between half an hour to an hour. We draw some blood. We take a little bit of history, you know, for me, for example, in my history of someone who's considering egg freezing, I want to know if she has any risk factors for maybe early menopause, things that may actually be of very important interest for her to consider as an extra reason for freezing her eggs now. Mm -hmm. But in that one hour visit, we do all of that and she goes home. If indeed it comes back and it's where she wants it to, you know, it's at a point where we think it's a good number for egg freezing, then we go ahead and we schedule her to do egg freezing. The egg freeze process itself, it takes about 10 to 14 days of medications. A lot of the medications are injectable medicines, but they're not big needles or anything. They're very tiny needles that you place right around the belly button and it's sufficient to get you the medications you need. And during those 10 to 14 days, you probably see your doctor three or four times total. Mm -hmm. The harvesting procedure, we call it an egg retrieval. For egg retrieval, you typically are put to sleep. So it's almost like what we call twilight or conscious sedation. So no tubes down the throat or anything to help Mm -hmm. them breathe, but they're comfortable such that they don't remember the procedure, nor do they feel any discomfort from it Mm -hmm. and so 10 to 14 days and then eggs are taken out and frozen how long does the procedure take for the the retrieval yeah retrieval procedure is actually very short it's 15 to 20 minutes long Mm -hmm. and so most people you know from the time they arrive at the clinic or the procedure area that day to the time they're going home it's no longer than about 90 minutes okay It's very quick. Uh Um, Of course, because you're put under anesthesia, we encourage the patients take that day off, you know, go home, rest, uh, don't make any big decisions. And then, you know, back to work the next day, typically. Yeah. Cost. So cost for egg freezing varies. For example, here in Las Vegas, it can be as affordable as $6,000. In some markets, though, it can cost as much as nine to ten thousand dollars. Wow! And so, does insurance cover it? Does the insurance cover part of it? Yeah, are there are a lot of insurance companies that do that. There are a lot more who are covering it today than were two years ago. Okay. However, if you were to look at the vast majority of insurance policies, they do not. Now, 
a lot more employers are offering egg freezing as part of their benefits package. And I think that's outstanding. Uh, some of those employers include Starbucks, Starbucks Corporation. Wow. Oh, yeah. Good for Starbucks. Good for Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Starbucks. It's a good business model, I have to say. As a businesswoman, I was like, they are thinking. They are. So anyone, anyone who works at Starbucks 20 hours or more per week gets fertility benefits. Amazon does it. Tesla does it. Facebook and Google were amongst the first to offer it to their employees. And then there are quite a few others. So we've discovered recently that McDonald's does for their management level uh, employees. McDonald's offers it. And so more and more are. There are actually some states in the country where it is mandated that fertility coverage be offered. And so those will include states like Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, depending on parts of Maryland, and uh, Connecticut, and then New York, the most recent state to have what we call a mandate, meaning it's state law to provide fertility benefits, is New York State, which Mm -hmm. is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Here on the West Coast, we don't have many. We don't have it. What? No, not from the, not from a state level. Not, not from, from a state, a state level. level. So it's yeah. more East Coast stuff than <laughs> it is West Coast. Do they think that we're a little bit quicker, or I don't know what was the reason for that? That's a good one. I think you know we need to do more advocacy. Obviously, mm-hmm. I think as women, we need to reach out and start. When we ask for different, I mean, there's so much that we need to advocate for. So I understand. Yeah. You take you take your win. Pay equal pay. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) It's hard to put it all up at once, but that would be something I think we should advocate for more. But more and more employers definitely are. Uh More employers are. Okay. And so, does the mandated paying for infertility does that include IVF as well? What does that include? So the states who have mandates, yes, and they typically mandate that a certain number of cycles be covered. And so they have very specific criteria for which, you know, as a physician, we have to demonstrate that the patient needs that particular treatment. But once you can demonstrate that, then yes, the mandated states, employers' benefits will cover those things. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about the mandated states is also that if a company is headquartered in that mandated state, but their employees work in other states or maybe they have other subsidiaries, wherever the headquarter is, that's the state whose mandate covers their employees. Interesting. Okay. So if the headquarters is in New York or Massachusetts or any of those states that you you just said, then their employees, depending on what their protocols and criteria are, will be able to get that treatement. Benefit. Yeah. It's pretty neat. So certainly here in Las Vegas, in Nevada, we see that. We have some patients who work here locally, yeah. but their company is headquartered in one of those mandated states. And so they have fertility benefits. Mm, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So it sounds yeah. like we in the in the California area <laughs> and on the West Coast need to be advocating for many things, including fertility benefits, right? Or infertility yes, I think it's fertility a, benefits. It's a worthwhile conversation. Yeah. You know, some health plans in California do offer some fertility benefits. For example, Kaiser, I know, offers. 
by the way, this is in no way an endorsement or paid. I'm just giving information. Kaiser does have some benefits, but it usually doesn't extend to in vitro. So there's some states where they have some plans that are part of the health exchange that may cover insemination cycles. But for example, insemination means you're planning to get pregnant now. Yeah, uh, That will not be for someone who's looking to freeze eggs, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so once you've gone through the process where you've done the injections, you've had the egg retrieval, how mm-hmm. long can eggs be frozen for? That's a great question. I like to tell patients in perpetuity, meaning forever. In theory, your eggs can stay frozen and be shipped to Mars. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. So really... Once your eggs are frozen, you have a very long time to use them. Uh, As long as you're otherwise healthy, you can use your eggs, meaning you can carry your own babies all the way up to age 55 in terms of what our national guidelines say. And then even maybe beyond 55 based on your physician team's assessment of your health. Mm -hmm. And of course, also depending on how old you want to be as a parent going Mm -hmm. to college graduation. (laughs) Exactly. You have to think practical, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So it sounds like, or is it a multidisciplinary thing where determining a woman at what age she can carry a baby to? Is it like a multidisciplinary thing? I make it multidisciplinary. I wouldn't say every single clinic does, but I certainly do for my moms who are 45 and older. And so even 40 and older. So for example, if a woman comes to me at age 40 or older, one of the things I make sure to check before we do anything else is aside from getting a really good medical history is making sure her routine health preventive things are done. So her pap smear, her mammogram, make sure they're negative, knowing that these are all things that can also grow in response to hormonal treatment. I want to make sure that I've ruled out things like a cancer, et cetera, because I don't really want her having to make that tough choice once she's pregnant and finding out. Likewise, we follow guidelines. So for example, Historically, uh, for the more than the last 10 years, women of African heritage were recommended to have a colonoscopy at 45, while their non-Black counterparts were recommended for age 50. I actually think everybody's now recommended for 45, Mm -hmm. but we recommend a colonoscopy, make sure everything's healthy there before they get pregnant. And for our moms-to-be who are 50 Mm -hmm. or older, then we recommend getting an EKG as well. Mm, to make sure your heart is fine. Make sure the heart is fine. Yeah. And so that means sending you for either to your primary care doctor, or sometimes we send them to our, a, a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. We sometimes send them to see a high risk obstetrician, you know, and again, that's if she's generally healthy. If she has issues related to maybe blood pressure, diabetes, then it's definitely multidisciplinary because we yeah. want to get those things under control mm-hmm. before she gets pregnant. Or then we may have to talk about someone else carrying the baby for her. Mm, okay. And you know what? Actually, I did have a question. Do people share eggs? Like, do people share their eggs with other people? Yeah, that's becoming more and more of a thing now. Absolutely. So 
you know, again, part of this is based on the affordability issue, right? Yeah. And so there are now programs that offer young women the opportunity to go through a cycle where eggs are obtained. She gets to freeze some eggs for herself, for her future use, and then she can also have some of the eggs be used as part of an egg donation program mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. defray the costs of her egg freezing process. It's not very popular yet. Yeah. Some of the bigger clinics are offering that. Absolutely. Okay. But it's becoming more popular. It is. It is. is. Because it's certainly a way to typically women who donate eggs are somewhere between age 21 and 30. Mm -hmm. And so many people choose to become an egg donor because one, you know, it's an altruistic thing. They like the idea of helping families. But it also is something that where they're compensated. Yeah. And so they're compensated for the egg donation. Typically, the clinic pays for the medications and the process of the egg freezing, of getting the eggs out for the IVF. And so as part of that, as an incentive also for egg donation, some programs also offer, if you choose to donate your eggs, once a certain number of eggs have been retrieved or harvested, we will freeze a certain number of them for you. For your wow. use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there a black market for eggs? No, thank no. you. Because <laughs> I know there's ones for organs and, you know, different right. things. And actually a friend of mine asked that question. I was like, is there a black yeah. market? I was like, oh, I will ask. No, not in the moment. So the one thing to know is that Egg donation is highly regulated by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, in the United States at least. Yeah. And so, for example, in order to even do egg donation or run an egg donation program, you first have to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And those approval processes, they're lengthy. You get spot visits. Like we had our FDA visit. It's unannounced. They showed up like I think in April of this year. Mm -hmm. And they're very strict. And so you have to follow all guidelines, which means you're testing for so many things, so many infectious diseases, infectious processes, you're screening them out, and you have to show that you are following all guidelines. Likewise, every donor has to be tracked in that way. And so in terms of egg purchasing and selling, no. And the U.S. is actually one of the few countries in the world where you can even purchase eggs. Hmm. And, you know, I was, I was going to ask that, like, you know, we're in the U.S. and there's a lot of information around egg freezing and there's women that are waiting later because of their careers and so forth. Like, is this a U.S. thing or is this like a, a worldwide thing in terms of like um, in terms of delaying fertility, future fertility? Yeah. Yeah. The trend is global. It's yeah. a global trend. Definitely the Western countries have the trend at the top, meaning, you know, a lot of women in Western countries are delaying childbearing to their 30s and even 40s compared to, say, India and parts of Africa. But certainly, even in those countries, the average age of a woman at birth of her first child has trended up by about five years. Yeah, Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so when women come in to see you for egg freezing, what are some common misconceptions that they have around it? Mm-hmm. Well, I would tell you one of the more common ones is there are quite a few women who believe that they're releasing an egg when they're bleeding. 
when they're having a period. And that actually is the opposite. So when you're having a period, it means your egg release occurred about two weeks before and that the egg hung out for about 12 to 20 hours waiting to see if it'll meet sperm. Mm. And then if no sperm uh, came to it or if it didn't fertilize and certainly if it didn't implant, then your body sheds the lining and that's the bleeding that happens two weeks later. And so that's one of the first things that we do is I find myself spending time just explaining how the menstrual cycle works. Yeah. Uh, Explaining that bleeding is actually not egg release. And that's really important because if it's someone coming to see me for infertility and they actually thought they were releasing an egg when they're bleeding, then that's usually when they're trying (laughs) to get pregnant. (laughs) So they're trying when they're having their periods. Correct. Mm. And so that's one of the misconceptions that's fairly common. Another one that we see is most people believe when you do IVF or you do egg freezing and we take out eggs, we're taking out all of your eggs. And that's not true. The Mm. truth is whenever we do those cycles, we're just taking the eggs the ovary would have used up that month anyway. And so every month, the eggs that your body is selecting or sorting through are eggs that started a program, a process about three months before. So remember I said we're born with all of our eggs, right? Yeah. So we're born with all of our eggs and they're all sort of just parked up. They're in a parking lot sitting there in the ovarian parking lot. And every month the body sends a signal that tells a group of the eggs that are parked there, hey, you need to start preparing because one of you is going to be the egg in three months. Right. And so they're slowly going along a three month process. So at any given time, when we look at a woman, she's got eggs going through different stages of a 90 day process. So when we do IVF, we're just really stimulating or treating the eggs that are in their final stage of their three month activation process. And so, no, we never take all your eggs in one cycle. But that's something we have to explain because most people, when they hear IVF, and that's a fear of IVF is I don't want to do IVF because then they're going to take all my eggs. And if it doesn't work, all my eggs are gone. Mm. No. In IVF, you're just taking what the ovary would have prepared for that month anyway. We're just rescuing all the runners instead of one of the runners. Okay. What is the process for IVF? So you have... I guess, gotten to a point where you are not able to get pregnant, maybe you, or could you have frozen the eggs? And then is that considered like once you, if you want to retrieve the eggs from being frozen, is that considered, that is not considered IVF, right? Yeah. Well, I will tell you, IVF in general, an egg freezing process is no different for the woman in terms of the process from starting medications to having the eggs taken out. The difference is what happens after the eggs are taken out. So if you're someone freezing eggs, on the day that we take out the eggs, about four hours later, we freeze them. If you're someone who has sperm available, whether it be a partner or you're using donor sperm and you're doing in vitro, on the day that we take the eggs out, we also have the sperm ready and we will inject each egg with sperm to actually accelerate fertilization or to facilitate fertilization. So that's in vitro. Now, for a lot of people, though, and I like to emphasize this because I know 
one of the misconceptions out there is a lot of people are afraid to go see fertility doctors because they believe all we do is push IVF. That's all we do. Yeah. You know, if you come in, they're going to make you do in vitro first. And that's not true. I, for one, evaluate every single patient and I assess to see what's going on with them. Because for some people, their infertility isn't that they don't get pregnant. It's that they don't stay pregnant. And so if that's someone who's having recurrent miscarriage, she may not necessarily need IVF, what she might need is some support to keep the pregnancy when she gets pregnant next. Uh, for others, they're not getting pregnant because they're not regularly releasing eggs. So like in the most common person who falls into that category is PCOS, polycystic mm, yeah. ovary syndrome. This actually is Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Awareness Month. <laughs> PCOS. Oh, it is. Oh, yes, yes. September is PCOS Awareness Month. Now, what's interesting about PCOS is about one third to one half of women with PCOS don't release an egg regularly. So they may have periods, maybe three or four per year, but they're not releasing an egg every month. And so, in her case, if that's the only reason why she's not getting pregnant, meaning if an egg came out, sperm and egg would have a chance to meet, then it actually doesn't make sense to jump to in vitro for her. Okay. For her, we actually treat with medications and many times with insemination, meaning we put the sperm into the uterus just when we know the eggs that we've induced their release are coming out mm -hmm. uh, to help her achieve pregnancy. And so that's known as ovulation induction using medications like Clomid, Clomiphene, or Letrozole for Mara. So many people, about 40% of patients will start off with that type of treatment first when they come to see a fertility specialist. And it's not until two or three of those cycles haven't worked that we then consider going on to in vitro. Okay. And so I like to say that first, but yes, once you get to the point of in vitro, then the process is the same leading up to taking the eggs out. What's different is what happens when the eggs are taken out. Now, if someone's frozen their eggs and maybe someone's listening right now and she has her eggs frozen and she's thinking, well, it might be time for me to go get them turned into embryos. Yeah. Well then if you have a partner, then you come in with your partner. That's typically when the clinic will do a semen analysis on your partner, see if the partner is making sperm, if the partner from a health standpoint is healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, if there is no partner or no male partner, someone making sperm, then uh, typically they're considering using a donor, a sperm donor. And so you can either get that from a sperm bank mm -hmm. or through someone that you know, that's known as a directed donor. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's really the big difference. But then we thaw the eggs, we inject them with sperm uh, in a process known as intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Again, we put the sperm directly into the egg. And what happens from then on is the same as what would happen if we had taken the eggs out in regular IVF and put sperm in that day as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so the frozen, the unfrozen egg is injected mm -hmm. with the sperm. Yes. And at what point is it placed inside the, the uterus? The woman. It can yeah. go into the uterus as soon as five to six days later, if it makes it to what we call the blastocyst stage or the embryonic stage that is similar 
to what it looks like when it comes down through the fallopian tubes into the uterus in a natural cycle. Okay. And so a lot of what we do in IVF is really just to mimic what we know to be normal biology and normal physiology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And so it could go in as quickly as five to seven days later. But for most people, we actually freeze those embryos when they're formed. And then we proceed to do what's called a frozen embryo transfer later on. Which means what? So that's when we start preparing her uterus to accept embryos that we know already formed. But we prepare with hormones, low doses of estrogen, and then progesterone. And we do a couple ultrasounds to check the uterus. And when the uterine lining is ready, then we thaw one or two embryos and we put them in to get her pregnant. Mm, okay. And again, embryo is a fertilized egg. Yeah. Okay. Is there any way that a woman can just use her egg mm-hmm. and have sex normally and have a normal process or like, is that like a low risk of getting or not low risk, but low chance of getting pregnant? If she's frozen the eggs or just on her own, on her side? Oh, no, no. So if she, she's frozen the eggs, she's, it's now unfrozen. Is there any way that she can do it naturally or it has to be the putting of no. the egg to the sperm? Mm-hmm. Once an egg has been frozen, it can no longer be fertilized the usual way, which is just putting the egg in with sperm and waiting. Yeah. Instead, it has to be injected with sperm. But you bring up a good point, which is if someone's frozen eggs, but they've never actually tried to get pregnant, they just froze their eggs as an insurance. Let's say, you know, someone's listening, she's 32, 33, and this has, you know, made her concerned enough that she wants to freeze her eggs and she freezes her eggs. Does it mean that when she's ready to try in two years, three years, four years, five years, that she needs to immediately thaw her eggs? No. If she hadn't tried before, we'll say go ahead and do the usual try, right? So, yes. So for egg freezing, it's certainly an opportunity for her to freeze her eggs. And then she could still try with her partner. She has a partner first before thawing her eggs. But she has this insurance now that if she doesn't achieve pregnancy the natural way, then she can come to the clinic and she's got younger eggs that she had frozen Mm. that she can now use. So that's really the benefit of that. Yeah. The other benefit I would say, and the big thing I think everyone should hear about, if you're considering free, you should definitely, definitely ask your doctor, how many eggs do I need to freeze to give myself a good chance at a baby? Should I need to thaw them in the future? Yeah, that is a good question. Yeah. And I'd like to bring that up. There are two questions I want everyone to know. That one. And the other question is, you actually want to ask the clinic, how many eggs have they thawed and how many babies have they gotten from thawed eggs? Because the truth is, any clinic in the world can freeze an egg. The bigger question is, how many of them can really thaw it, Mm -hmm. fertilize it, and create embryos and yield babies? Right. Mm. And so that's really the big thing. The first question is how many? So why does how many matter? Well, for example, if someone's 25, for every five eggs that she freezes, she's probably going to get one baby born from that in the future. Meaning if we thaw five eggs, fertilize them, we'll have at least one baby born from those five eggs that came from a 25 year old woman. 
However, if someone is 38, 39, 40, she's probably going to need to freeze somewhere between 12 and 15 eggs to have a shot and at least one baby. And so the younger you are, the more efficient your eggs are at mm-hmm. yielding a baby because that's that quality issue yeah. that we were talking about earlier. And conversely, in someone older, then you need more eggs because it takes more to find the right one. <laughs> mm, I see. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those, yeah, those are why consider doing it when you're younger, if you can. Yeah. Those are great questions to ask. In the um, consultation with a, a specialist, yes. I would not have thought of those questions beforehand. Yeah. No, and it's one I, I like to tell all my friends, all my girlfriends, anybody who reaches out to me who says, hey, Cindy, I just want to know, I'm going for my consult. What should I ask? Those are the things I emphasize. You know, you want to ask them. It's not price. A lot of people get fixated on price, but price is not what you want to hear. Yeah. What you want is how many take-home babies have you had from people who thawed eggs and fertilized them? Yeah. And if your clinic is saying they've been freezing eggs for five plus years, but they have no thawed data, you should be a little worried. Mm. I would, I yeah. would seek an alternate place. Uh-huh. So what is the number? Is there like an average number? Would, would they give a percentage like, oh, we've, you know, we've had 75%. Like what is a right. good number yeah. to be like, okay, this is a good clinic for me to be mm-hmm. at? I would say if their live birth rate is somewhere around 50 to 55% or higher, that would be a good clinic okay. uh, to go to. That would be my number, my threshold that I would be looking for. If they're telling you numbers like 90%, meaning they say 90% of women who froze their own eggs had babies from the thaw, that seems not realistic with the current data and the current technology. Yeah. That's what I would say. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That is great. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I am so happy that you are on and we are having this conversation about egg freezing and infertility, because like I said earlier, it's not the easiest. And I I know that I've had to even confront it for myself. Like, do I want to freeze my eggs? Do I not? Because I currently do not have a partner, but it is something that has been on my mind and been on many of my friends' minds. And so I was like, we we have to have this conversation. So thank you so much, Dr. Duke, for being on. And since I have been asking everyone this question at the end, (laughs) but since the podcast is called Viva La Vulva, if you can leave the listeners with any uplifting stories or facts or tips about the vulva. Mm -hmm. Well, what I would say is one of the things (laughs) I had an attending when I was a resident and he loved to say the vulva can take a beating. (laughs) And so what that meant, though, it sounds funny, but it meant that it was actually very resilient, but you also should take good care of it, right? And so I think for a lot of women, we're so afraid to even look down there. It's so much the unmentionable that we don't look until it's too late. And so we really should be familiar with the general layout of the area, (laughs) And that way, if something is going wrong, you can tell right away. Yes. And it's part of empowering yourself because it is your body. It's a very intimate part of your body. Yes. But it's actually as important to your body as your hands, et cetera. 
And so care for it, look at it. I don't know what else I have that's super empowering that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, I but- feel like that's empowering enough. Like just to <laughs> just to look at it and encourage, it. yeah, just encourage people to look at it because I feel like that is it's important. And there's important. many women that that just don't understand. No, I mean, I have patients that I examine even they're well into their forties, and I'll see something there and I'll say, "Has this always been here?" Right because I'm trying to assess whether I need to do something, a big workup, or is yeah. this just something that's been there? And, it's a, and they'll say, I don't know. I've never looked down there. And, you know, just like we say, you should know the other landmarks on your body. You know, if you have a birthmark, you know, you should know what's there. You, you should know. know what you should know. Yes. You should know. You should <laughs> know. And don't be afraid to advocate for the area. <laughs> so, you know, you come in to see your physician, you should be taking as much care asking about that area as you would asking about a child, asking about your parents. It's an important area. It is. And, (laughs) and what I would also say is, because I feel like there's some doctors, you know, especially the, the generalists, the internists, the family medicine doctors that might not be as comfortable with having a conversation, especially when it comes to maybe sexual health or pain or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Go to or seek out a physician or a provider that is comfortable with having this conversation, that is comfortable with answering those, you know, sensitive questions. Yes. Because it's important. It's really important. And I feel really sad whenever I hear someone describe a story where they didn't feel empowered enough to ask the questions yeah. that they wanted to know. And, you know, if you're a mom listening out there, a big sister, a caregiver, it's something that it's good to know to do because you can pass that knowledge on and teach someone about it. It's important. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so important. So thank you, Dr. Duke. And I want you to let everyone know how they can stay in contact with you, how they can um, see you for a consultation. If they are thinking about egg freezing or if they are do, you know, wanting to do IVF. Yeah, so if you can let us yes. let them know. Well, let's see. Oh my goodness. I'm all over social media. I am most active on Instagram. So on Instagram, you can find me at Dr. Cindy M. Duke. So D-R-C is in Charlie, I-N-D-Y, M. Duke. I'm on Twitter with the same handle, Dr. Cindy M. Duke. On Facebook, I do have a very active Facebook page. It's Dr. Cindy M. P. Duke on Facebook. And then I do have a website. So on my website, drcindyduke.com, I have a blog. I do place a lot of health and wellness tips weekly. I have a podcast called Girl Powered (laughs) Success and Survival International or Gripsy. And it's available everywhere on Apple, Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher, Google Play, And so certainly you can hear me talk to women and different women there about just general life and health. But in terms of seeing me as a patient, so yes, you can go to drcindyduke.com or you can go directly to my clinics page, Nevada Fertility Institute. We do, not only do we do in-person consultations, but I do telemedicine consultations. And so for those patients who are out of town, who perhaps just want a fertility check, Uh, We can facilitate that in a consultation and getting your labs ordered so you can have those tests performed. Mm. Um, I'm also more than happy to refer to doctors in your area. If you reach out asking who's in my area, I will send you to the doctors in your area that I know of. 
Yes, that is so important. That is really important because I feel like there's, I mean, there's a growing number and I feel like uh, there are certain cities that have a good population of fertility specialists. Yes. Uh, but then there's some places that just, it's few and far between. Few and far between. I mean, yeah. like, I'm here in Las Vegas, Nevada, but I see patients who come from Arizona, parts of Arizona, who come from parts of New Mexico, for example, we have patients coming. It's true because not, you know, the fertility doctors tend to be in the big cities, the metro, metropolitan areas. And so, yeah, a lot of the rural areas, people are facing the same issues, but they don't have that access. Yeah. 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 So it's great. And I will put all that information in the description of the podcast. So you will be able to contact her through social media or through her website and so forth. So Thank you again, Dr. Duke, for coming on and having this important conversation. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Kwan. Yes. And Viva La Viva La Yes. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Share it on Instagram, Facebook, and just spread the news that this information is helpful to women and uh, we are empowering the vulva uh, one conversation at a time so (laughs) thank you for listening and bye